Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you love. And today I am joined by a, not a guest exactly, more like a friend, an old friend of the show. Barrett Brooks is with us. Hey Barrett, how you doing? hey I don't know if I have to host you anymore. Sort of like when you come to my house. I don't have to host. You can just do I know what where you the need liquor cabinet is. <laughs> That's right. Pour your own old-fashioned. <laughs> it's great good to, to be back. back. Yeah, great to have you back on the show. Uh, you may not know this, but Caleb was on last week, so we're, we're having like a little bit of a reunion month here. I love it. It's a victory, or victory tour. It wouldn't be a victory tour. It'd be a, uh, a reminiscing tour. I don't know <laughs> Rem- Yeah, we haven't made victory yet. I don't know what the end is, but we're not there for sure. I'm happy to have you on today separately. We're still in COVID land, which means we're recording in the same town, but you're several blocks away. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't had a chance yet to caress each other and share a cocktail yet. Which Give is a, a nice hug and hang out. I know yeah. it's a bummer. Hopefully soon. But you caused a little bit of a stir recently, and this seems like perfect conversation for The Fizzle Show. You responded to a tweet from James Clear, another mutual friend of ours and friend of The Fizzle Show, who asked on Twitter, as he often does, he said, what is one interesting idea or concept you can summarize in a single tweet? And uh, you popped in there. I don't know how many responses you saw before you wrote, but what you responded and what I want to cover today is you said that a person's best thinking is rarely communicated through synchronous conversation. And here we are, of course, in a synchronous conversation (laughs) (laughs) where we're going to debate whether or not that is true. But I want to expand it a little bit further and just talk about content in general. And today I want to cover ideas for making unique forms of content, content that can help you stand out. But this was really interesting because of all the forms of content, when we think about you know, podcasts and interviews and YouTube videos and so on. In many cases, there are both scripted and unscripted versions. And here you are, I think, making an argument for the scripted version of content where you have time to chew on something, to digest it and to simmer it down. We've probably all heard the, I forget who the quote was from, but it was something like, I would have you would have written you a shorter letter, except I didn't have time, right? Yep. Because it, it does take time to boil something down. And the end result is that hopefully somebody gets something that is more thought through and more polished, and they don't have to listen to so much of the thinking that goes behind something. What, yeah, what, and what know, came to mind? Was this just off the cuff or was this more thought through? Well, here was one of the most fascinating things. I loved the question. I'm, Number one, I, James has really fascinated me with his ability to go platform to platform and find the best way to engage there. And he seems like he's found one of the highest signal to ratio ways to just engage with people on Twitter. He's got very high value content that he puts out there and he gets, as you've seen, I mean, my tweet in response to his tweet got 720 likes. My, and I wasn't even the tweet, you know? Like, <laughs> right. And he got 700. Maybe, maybe you're onto something there, by the way. I know. I don't know about you, but I can't like tweet something and get 720 of likes on my not. own account. But you're just on James's coattails, and there you go. Well, it was funny. I was working out in the yard, and I just took a break to check Twitter, and he had just tweeted it. And so I think I was maybe the first or second response. So I, you know, it was cheating from that perspective. But he got 760 responses to this thing, and with mine right up front, it just got a ton of engagement. 
And I've always admired, I've, I've been in this line of thinking lately where there are some people on Twitter, the, a few people I outlined to you were James, uh, a guy named Naval Ravikant, Maria Popova, I think actually does it better in her, her kind of blog post that she writes, but she's pretty good on Twitter too, that just seem to think clearly the, the value of every word that they put out is just very high. You know, you get a lot of value if you read their work and it's made me think about why, you know, what is different about them? Are they more intelligent? Are they better thinkers? Do they just have more time on their hands? And when he tweeted that, I said, you know what, I'm going to engage with this because I bet I have a lot of ideas that I just haven't taken the time to put them into a sentence. And this was one of them. And so I had been thinking a lot recently. We run, you know, Convert, well, you may not know. If you're listening, ConvertKit is the company I run. And we have a fully remote team. There's now 55 people as of today on the team. And so we're growing pretty rapidly. We've got people in like 13 time zones. And it it gets more complex the bigger you get. And communication is very challenging the more people you add to any organization. Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen over at at Basecamp, the founders over there have long been advocates of this idea of asynchronous communication, communicating in a way that you don't have to be online at the same time in order to get a point across. I was always challenged by it. I didn't ever really like that all that much. It felt pedantic and kind of dogmatic coming from them. And the more that I've led this team and the more that I've paid attention to my own thought process, the more I've realized that conversation can spark ideas for me. Like me and you talking, I'll have a new idea and I might tweet one of them later. I found that a lot recently in podcasting daily, but it's not usually the purest form that I communicate like this. It's usually just the beginning. And then I go and think about it. And it's like, well, what did I actually mean there? And how could I distill it so that it's easily consumed? And then I write it. That's almost always the case. Now we might be able to dig in on it together in a conversation, but the written form is the purest form. It's the best thinking I have on the topic. And that's usually when I find that people in my organization, at least have the least confusion about what I'm trying to say is when I've written something down, I've edited it. I've taken some time to consider what I'm trying to say. And then I hit publish. If, if you, you know, think about people that write books frequently to be able to write a book in a year is pretty fast. So a lot of people take, you know, two or three years to write a book and here you end up with their best, you know, several thousand words on a, on a topic. And if they had just, you know, for the time that they were working on that book, hit record and said everything that came to mind, you would have hours and hours and hours, like days and days worth of audio material versus the 10 hours or so that, that you could listen to a book in. So it's clearly condensed information. We used to talk mm-hmm. about on The Fizzle Show, people once in a while, I'm sure you remember this, would talk about our style, especially when there were several <laughs> of us hosting at once and, and Chase was running the show. And we would often say to them that the show is more like where the sausage is made. You don't necessarily want to see that. You're getting all of the just unraveling of ideas. And then the best of those ideas end up living in guides and blog posts and courses and workshops and things like that. But the podcast, just by nature of recording for an hour every week, or like you're doing daily now, you're going to have some dead ends in your thought process. 
Yes. So maybe a podcast is not the highest signal to noise ratio. That is not where you go if you want really dense information, I don't think. And and you can see that just in if you look at the 24/7 news channels, right? Ever since the news has gone to this, you know, ongoing cycle, the signal to noise has gotten so low. If you watch now, often they have some kind of breaking headline with no more information beyond that. And then they just have like four highly paid people sitting around a table speculating and guessing and making up all of these like, you know, vibrantly colored scenarios, which are very unlikely to be true. But that's the entertainment piece of it. They Mm -hmm. want to keep you glued to the TV. If, on the other hand, you wanted to find out what really was important about that thing, you would read about it later in the paper after a reporter had time to digest and vet everything. Right. So... So, so maybe it's, it's just because a form, and I, I don't think there's a whole lot you can argue about this, that you're saying the purest form of communication or a person's best thinking ends up being communicated in the written form or in an asynchronous form where they have time to digest it and, and whittle it down. I don't think there's, that that's an argument, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that should be the only form of communication, right? Because- right. Sometimes there's a lot of synchronous communication required to get to that point where you can put out your best. Totally. And this was, you know, you always know you landed on something when people want to poke holes in all the ways it's wrong, you know? <laughs> right. And I got a bunch of those replies. I pulled this out and I tweeted it in my own account and got the same kind of engagement. And a lot of people wanted to say, well, what about this situation, that situation, this situation? It's like, yes, yeah, so all of those things are still valuable. I'm not saying don't communicate any other way. I'm just saying that even if I tried to communicate my best idea and we had a conversation back and forth about it and I refined my thinking, I'm probably still not going to communicate the refined thinking accurately in the conversation. I'm going to go away. I'm going to process and I'm going to come back with a better version. And so absolutely. I mean, the creative process of getting to the idea and coming up with it to begin with. Yeah. I think you've got to have these kinds of moments or these kinds of conversations with other smart people who can really help you hone in on what you actually mean but then once you mean it, you've got to, you can't get interrupted at that point. You know, you, you distract from the message. I think it's when someone can look at it and say, hmm, is that true? And really sit there and think with it, not just respond to it. I think that's why there's value in communicating that way. I love not to sidetrack here, but I, I love the way that James uses Twitter, James Clear. And, uh, you know, there when Twitter was new, it was really interesting to watch how people used it. And then it kind of just turned into a a chat platform, Mm -hmm. basically. But because James is a writer, he uses it, I think, to test ideas, right? And to put things out. But you can tell that there is a lot of thought that goes behind a lot of them. and And rightly so, he gets a ton of engagement from it. But that brings up sort of the broader point of today's episode, I think. And that is, what are some unique ways that you can use content to make it stand out? so that people take notice and that you rise above all the noise that's happening because there is so much content out there now. And, and we used to talk about this on the early days of the fizzle show five years ago and 10 years ago, when we started the start a blog that matters course, we talked about the fact that, you know, there are millions and millions of blogs in existence, only a handful of them really get noticed. And what's the difference between them? And now it's, you could say that for social media channels or YouTube channels or, or whatever. So Clearly, standing out is really important. And there are other things that are important too, showing up, having a voice, all that sort of stuff. But making your content stand out because it's unique is still 
a big part of that equation, wouldn't you say? Without a doubt. And, you know, we've always talked about kind of these different modes of standing out. There's, there's teaching, there's inspiring, there's entertaining, and there's different ways to stand out. You know, entertainment's completely different. Like you could argue that Chase's bag reviews, for example, are as much entertainment as they are about the bags. And that's why, I mean, I know people would just watch them because they're funny. It's not, they don't even need a bag anymore, you know? Totally. And so he's taking the approach of, let me entertain you while also talking about bags. And oh, by the way, some of you will buy them and I'll make money. And like, as you all would know, if you've been listening for a long time, I like to think of myself as a serious person. I want to have serious ideas and debate them and all of this. And so I get drawn to this way of standing out that we've been talking about with James or Naval or these other thinkers where they're making you really test your brain. You know, what does your brain think about this idea that I'm sharing with you? You know, not just like sit back and watch a Netflix show, but engage with me, debate me, tell me what you think and where am I wrong and how could I refine this? That's really fascinating to me. It's a, it's a different and interesting way to try to stand out. Yeah, it's interesting as well, you know, to say that, again, just to repeat what you said here, a person's best thinking is rarely communicated through synchronous conversation. In the case of someone like Chase or someone who's entertaining, you might make the argument that a person's best, and you don't have to use the same word, you don't have to say best thinking, but you could say that a person's best moments are often communicated through unscripted medium. You know, mm-hmm. in, in, in the case of Chase, you're, you know, people watch that 30 minutes because they know that something unexpected is going to come out of his mouth because he just winds himself up and sees where it takes him. Right. As opposed to if he tried to script all of those videos, they just wouldn't come out the same. Mm-hmm. And I know from watching him produce courses, even that when he wanted to get his best thinking out, he would script it. But if he wanted to get his best I don't know, charisma, like it's hard to, hard to know exactly what you're trying to convey there, but that thing that connects you to a person through the screen, sometimes that needs to be unscripted. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, I guess if I were going to like refine this, so let's say we were just playing with this thought and we said, all right, well, best thinking, that's really kind of, there's, there's not a lot to hold on to there. There's very amorphous. Okay. Maybe, well, it's a person's most refined ideas are rarely, Maybe it is are rarely communicated through synchronous conversation. And then the addendum would be, but every great idea must come through refinement with conversation or something like that. You know, yes. and that would create this interesting contrast where people would be like, ah, oh, I don't know. Is that true? Like, what about this situation and that situation? And there's always more. But the question was, what's one interesting idea or concept you can summarize in a single? Oh, okay. You said single tweet. I gave him a single sentence. And so if I were going to do single tweet and build on it, that's probably how I'd build on it now. I'm, I'm also thinking of like Broadway shows. Obviously, there are weeks and weeks and weeks of grueling practices and revisions to the script and directorial notes and so on that end up being, you know, culminated in one 90 minute performance. And that 90 minute performance is what the audience is all there to see. It's the thing that's been refined down Mm -hmm. as opposed to watching how the sausage was made. So, but you know, there are plenty of theater buffs who would love to sit in on a practice and see what's going on behind the scenes, Right. right? Right now, the world is changing and businesses are adapting in different ways. So in these uncertain times, how do you make sure your marketing gets the results you need? 
LinkedIn can help you reach the right people who are looking for opportunities to help their businesses and can focus your campaigns on the objectives for today so your marketing works better. With over 62 million decision makers on LinkedIn, you're able to connect with the right business leaders, people who are there to learn how to be more effective at their jobs and find products to help their companies. 71% of people say they use information they find on LinkedIn to inform their business decisions. And with LinkedIn ads, you can make sure your messages are getting through to these relevant people. See how LinkedIn can help you with a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit to launch your first campaign. Visit linkedin.com fizzle. That's linkedin.com fizzle. Terms and conditions apply. Well, and here's what, maybe some of this is just about writing and, and James retweeted me at some point and talked about it being an argument for writing, but you could argue that a Broadway show is written before it's performed. Mm -hmm. A song is written before it's performed. I think a lot of great YouTube videos are written before they're performed and they're not always scripted to the T, but they're outlined and written. And so I think there's just something to the written medium that allows us to refine our thinking in a way that gets clear. I guess the core here that I'm, I'm arguing for in terms of standing out with content is be clear about what it is you have to say. Yes. You know, the best books, the best Ted talks, the best, whatever they're the best because someone is clear about what they've learned enough to be able to say it directly to you. And I think that's pretty rare online right now. I think a lot of people are publishing things right now that are trying to figure out what they have to say. And there's nothing yes. wrong with that. That's where everyone's like, we all start there. Any new topic, you have to figure out what you have to say. Uh, but one of the best pieces of advice from, I don't know if it was an agent or an author or something was don't write a book until you know you have something to say. Because when you have nothing to say, it's, it's, I don't know, I, I was going to say it's trash. That's too harsh, but it's going to have a hard time getting traction on its own. And I think you see this sometimes when authors sign four or five book deals all at once because they mm -hmm. had one successful one and they're on a every year pace, you get to that, maybe they had a second idea and then you get to the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one. And I think this is where you get chicken soup for the teenage soul and the grandparent soul <laughs> and the everything else. Right. Because it's like, I don't have any new ideas. I can do the same idea for different audiences though. Would that work for you? <laughs> the first one sold a million copies, so why right. not? Let's try it. Exactly. I just saw a good example of this yesterday, actually. My, my wife sent me a link to a video from a YouTuber. His name's J.P. Sears. Are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. He's got this long red hair, and he does these like really satirical, sarcastic kind of 10-minute rants or so. And he did one recently about the epidemic that we're living through and about how people are just believing everything that the media says. And it, it's really interesting. But point being, he recorded that, and that became one of his most popular YouTubes ever, like very quickly, like multiple millions of views. And then because it was so successful, he recorded another video shortly after kind of explaining his thinking and going into more detail about it behind the scenes. The behind the scenes one, the second video that he recorded, was unscripted, just him direct to the camera. The one that was scripted was the one that was more popular, and that was 10 minutes that he had written out. It came out very quickly. He woke up with inspiration in the morning, wrote it all out, and then recorded it on video and probably had some edits and so on. But it was just interesting to see that that was the one that really grabbed people versus mm -hmm. him kind of just riffing on it later. I love this. I think one of... 
One of the insights I've had recently, and maybe this is just like having enough professional history to be getting to a point where I have my own thoughts, but so much of what we do in life in general is in response to something. I am responding to something you said. I am responding to a situation. I am responding to not having money and therefore I want to have money. I'm responding to hating my job and so I'm starting a business, whatever. Or it's something we feel like we should do. As a this kind of content creator, I should make this kind of video. I should make that kind of article. And I think what I'm learning is some of the most interesting people, which is maybe something I'm placing a value on that. Some of the most interesting people to me are saying, well, what do I think? Regardless of what's going on out there, you know, regardless of what someone else has asked me to write about, like, what am I thinking about right now? What am I interested in? And what are the conclusions I've reached on that? And it's never truly original, but I think there are original ways to communicate what it is that you're taking away from different situations. And a lot of times all that takes is stepping back and saying, all right, I'm just, just I'm going to sit here quietly. I'm going to shut down Twitter. I'm going to turn the electronics off for a minute. I'm going to write with a notebook. What are some things I've found to be true? If you're, you know, to go back to our classic example of like the fly fishing blog that we used to talk about. Well, what have I found true about fly fishing? And maybe, maybe you get into like a personal essay about you actually find that you fly fish because you find that you connect with yourself or nature or the world or something through that activity. And you get into all of these details and maybe moments start to come to mind of memories when you really felt that. And so there's, th there's this element of truth to your experience just because you took a moment to step back and say, why do I do that? Or what do I think about this topic independent of all this other stuff happening out there? I think there's a lot of gold to be mined there because we're always trying to impress someone. You know, we're social creatures. Yeah, and it's it's so natural to try to fit in, right? It's just kind of human social behavior. There's so much of what we do that's based on not wanting to be thrown out by the village and have to fend for ourselves, right? So we just try to fit in. But when you're creating content, like you said, if, if you are just doing what everyone else is doing, it's unlikely that that's going to rise above and, and grab people's attention. But on the other hand, it feels so risky to try doing something that no one else has done before. You kind of assume like, well, nobody's done that because it's not going to work, right? And so you end up just regurgitating and, and using the same old tropes that everybody else is, kind of going through the motions without ever stepping back to think for yourself and try something. And, you know, I can say, as you can, I think that, if you try something that's original, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a home run. A lot of times it's not. A lot of times you find out, oh yeah, there is some reason that that's not, you know, the way that people do things or it just didn't work this time. But if you try several times, several original things, then eventually you might stumble on something or somebody might notice the pattern and say, hey, you know, that Barrett Brooks or hey, you know, ConvertKit, they do things differently and they really seem to care. At the end of the day, that's what you're trying to get across is that you have someone else's best interest, that you consistently put out things that are worth their time and doing things originally over and over again is a, is a good way to kind of get their attention at least enough to look deeper into your work. You guys at ConvertKit have done a lot of things in unique ways with content. I'd love to hear a little bit about behind the scenes. I mean, I have a little bit over time, but I know that 
when you were uh, with us at Fizzle and then moved over to ConvertKit, you had a lot of ideas, some things that you kind of wanted to do here that we never did, and then other things that have come about since. I'm thinking specifically of things like the fact that you have done an issues-based blog for a long time or that you did for a long time where you basically, instead of writing something every other day, you collected it all into a central topic and published it almost like a magazine. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the book that you guys wrote, I Am mm-hmm. a Blogger. That was something interesting and unique for a media or for a software company to do to produ- produce a piece of media like that. I'm thinking about these creator sessions that you talked about recently. What is the like central ethos behind your content strategy and and why do you do so many things over there that are Mm. different from what other people are doing? There's a lot there because I've thought a lot about what I want us to be when we grew up basically. And yeah, it goes all the way back to us working together and to years before that, even doing my own thing. Some of it is just having the resources to do it, but there's a philosophy behind it. And one of the greatest driving forces of the, of the philosophy is I'm not trying to be like ClickFunnels or Teachable or, you know, I respect a lot of the founders of the companies that our, our customers use alongside us in terms of tools and everything. I'm trying to be like Nike or Patagonia or Masterclass or, you know, we have these like the great discontent is a site that I really admire. Vanity Fair I'm looking in other areas and saying, huh, that's interesting. What if we took that and brought that over here? So with Tradecraft, which is the the issue-based blog thing, one of my takeaways from Fizzle in kind of thinking through our content strategy, both for courses and for blog posts, is it's a crowded space to teach people to build a business online. I mean, there's so much content out there. And it's really hard to stand out. So what I knew immediately was we had to do something different in order to to build an audience. Secondly was my mind always wants to create information hierarchy. And I think that's the basis of good curriculum too for teaching. And so I kind of said, all right, well, I saw over here what it looked like when we structured our course curriculum in an order for people. People really liked that. They wanted a sense of completion and progress. Okay, let's take that principle and apply the curriculum-based ordered education. Well, what are the topics that an online business creator needs to learn about? And we put them in order of here are the things you're going to need to know. And then we did an issue on each of them. So in a way, it was just like a course, but in written form. But then we make it pretty because pretty is attractive. We're visually, we're much more visual than we are text-based creatures, Uh, And so we applied a layer of design to it that made it look really high quality and give it the thud factor of something that's been highly produced. And sure enough, over a long period of time, some of that stuff started to get traction. It started to be shared and it grew in organic search rankings. Did we know that was going to happen? No, for sure not. And a lot of the articles have gotten no traction whatsoever, but you're playing the lottery. You know, all of online businesses, you're playing the lottery and you're just trying to buy enough tickets to get some winners. And so that was a a systematic way to buy some tickets and get some winners. That was probably the closest to things I had already done before. That was probably the thing I knew most was likely to work. So then we went out and we said, um, all right, Kickstarter is a really interesting platform. Nike is a really interesting company that's using essentially sponsored athletes as their marketing. 
They're saying, if we go get the most well-known athletes in any space and we pay them money to wear our stuff, then the weekend warriors and the people who think of themselves as athletes and everyone in between will buy our stuff too because they look up to those people. And we thought, all right, well, let's define that for us. We also had a little bit of a bone to pick because blogger was this derogatory term that people had kind of derided and said, oh, you're a blogger. What do you actually do for a living? And we wanted to play with that a little bit and kind of send a message. So all of those things combined, the Nike idea, let's find some iconic bloggers from a bunch of different industries. Let's demystify this term of blogger and show that people make legitimate livings with it. And then let's see if we could launch on Kickstarter to get even more reach from the thing. Well, the Kickstarter thing completely failed. I mean, it was a horrible failure. People accused us of trying to make money from them when we could have just given the books away and whatever. Fine. But one of the things we did that was really smart that I learned from Seth Godin was we packaged them in books, groups of two. You could only buy two. You couldn't buy one. (laughs) So what you end up with is you end up with one for you and one you got to give away. Yep. So I was at this conference. Actually, JP Sears was at this conference. It was the Everything Food Conference, I think. Anyways, whatever, it doesn't matter. And this woman walks up and we had the books on our table at the conference that we were sponsoring. And she says, oh, y'all created I Am A Blogger. This is ConvertKit, that's awesome. I said, yeah, do you know about it or what? She said, yeah. And her friend's there with her. She's like, yeah, she knows. She quit her job because of that book. Tell them the story. And so then the original lady says, oh, well, you know, I read the book and, and I was reading the opening letter. I wrote the opening letter. She doesn't know this at the time. And it ends on something like, there's nothing special about these people. You can do it too. You should get started. We hope this book is the inspiration you need. And she said, when I read that sentence, I knew I was going to do it. And she said, so I started building my blog and I ended up quitting my job as a lawyer and I make a full-time living as a food blogger now. I said, oh, that's cool. I wrote that intro. And she was like, oh my God, oh my God, that thing changed my life. And And did we do that for thousands of people? No. But I bet it was for a few. I bet a few people, that was like the goal, right? Was to show them that it was a legitimate way to earn a living, give them some examples that they could hold up. So that's cool. And now we've turned that into, uh, we have a system around it. Every week we do an interview with a creator. We've kind of expanded from bloggers to creators of all kinds. We publish it with original photography on our blog. That's beautiful. And then once a month, one of them is also a mini documentary. And so now it's become a system because we know it works. And then the third one, this is a long monologue, but thanks for giving me the platform to talk about it. The third one now, the next risk we're taking are called creator sessions. This is still completely unknown, but we had set aside an events budget to go to all these conferences and sponsor them and get our name in front of all of the people we care a ton about and that we hope will use our software. Well, COVID hits and you know, we're not going anywhere to, because there are no events. And now we have this budget and we have an entire person on our team dedicated to it. And she's like, well, I better find a way to stay busy because <laughs> I want my job. And we wouldn't have let her go anyways. But she said, well, what if we tried something a little different? What if we started doing digital events? And what if we combine this idea of, of kind of Nike sponsored athletes with master class where they're taking famous people and having them teach and creators, which is our market. And we did a thing where they share their art And then in between, they kind of share the process behind the art. And so we did a few of them. We did like a a cooking show. We had a food blogger teach an hour long cook dinner with us kind of thing. We did an at-home workout. We did a sound bath, which is, I'd never heard of that before. It's like a 
an auditory experience where you sit and almost kind of like meditate to sounds that this guide creates. It's fascinating. And then we did one with a, a musician. And the musician was named Drew Holcomb. He performs with a group called Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. Kind of like an Americana country artist based in Nashville. And it was magical. I mean, the other ones were good, but this one was magical because the video quality was high. He was in his real living room at home, just him and the camera with his guitar. And it felt like, like I threw it up on our, our TV in the living room when I was doing it or watching it uh, live. And it just felt like I had this famous performer in my living room giving me a concert. And then in between every song, he'd say, we, well, we asked him questions, you know, we sent him a list of questions to talk about on, on the thing. And it'd be like, how hard is it to get started as a musician today and earn a living from it? And he'd, he'd go into it. Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta spend 10 years at least to make it if you're going to make it. Or when did you know you made it? And he'd go through that in between songs. But so you'd have this beautiful experience of watching live performance. And then you'd get to hear the actual thing behind it. One of my favorite moments though, was his wife comes on at the end. She's a performer, a musician as well. And they do a couple duets, but on one of them, he forgets the lyrics and he just stops and he's like, oh shit, I forgot the bridge. All right, hold on. Let me go back to it. Okay. All right. And she kind of helps him get it on his guitar and then he's like, okay, all right, let's go. And you're just seeing the art happen, you know? Yeah. And when that, when we saw that one, it was like, oh, we're onto something. There were, I don't know how many people watch it, a few hundred. It's not we're onto something, a million people watched it. It's there's something here. And if we keep doing this for 10 years, this is going to be, this could be iconic. Like this could be a thing where a musician says, I'm coming out with an album. I'm trying to make it. I better go do a creator session with them. Or a chef says, I'm coming out with a cookbook. I should go do a cooking show with them to launch it. And Nathan, our, our founder, he's been on the show before. Y'all have probably heard him. He shared the story of Michelin stars in response to kind of this vision that our teammate had come up with for creator sessions. And we said, you better lean into this because there's going to be a lot of people who think this is a foolish way to spend money and time. And there's going to be this dip where we don't have enough people watching. It's a lot of work. We're spending money to get these people. And just on the other side of that is where it becomes really, truly interesting for the brand. And you've got to be the biggest advocate. So don't let this thing die just because it feels hard. But his story attached to that was the Michelin star story. So Michelin is a tire company. They were started, I'm sure that's not how people uh, from France say it, but they were started in France. Michelin? Yeah, Michelin? something like that. Michelin. Michelin. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a moment when you need Chase. <laughs> and as a marketing thing, they started producing guides to restaurants and hotels and places we're seeing. And their thesis was, if we tell people what's worth traveling to eat or see, they'll drive on their tires more. And if they drive on their tires more, we'll sell more tires. And you know, it's not linear. You're not thinking if I publish a guide to a restaurant, people are going to buy more tires tomorrow. It's a long-term thing. And what ended up happening was they, they didn't disclose how they would rate restaurants, but they did it in the region. And then they picked several regions and now they do it in 34 regions every year. They rate restaurants all over the world. And Michelin stars are the icon of the food world for chefs. A chef's 
singular goal is to get a Michelin star. And so many people have like no idea that, that that's the tire company that right. produced those guides. Because why would you think that? Yeah. It makes no sense right. until you hear the story. And then you think, okay, so these, I think there was two brothers or something like that. These brothers, a hundred years ago or something said, here's an idea, let's try it. I love that so much. And that's, we're trying to think in those terms. And part of it is the privilege of, we don't have investors, we're profitable, we keep our team small so that we're, we have free cash flow and everything. And then we go out and we say, let's try and be, not let's try and be iconic, but let's do the kinds of things that could end up being iconic because well, we can. And yes, you have the the time and energy um, and money, but at the same time, I love what you were talking about with Nathan giving the owner of this project a pep talk saying, don't let this die because so many projects can die. And the average company would, instead of thinking about it and saying, how can we do something unique that will stand on its own as great, useful, interesting content, and then have the side benefit of getting our name out there. Instead, most average businesses would go directly at it as every other company had and simply start a YouTube channel with instructional videos about how to make better email templates or something. And they would grind it out amongst the hundreds of other people doing the exact same thing. And then when you have that pep talk with the person in charge of that project, it's even harder because not you don't have an interesting project with amazing like musical guests and chefs and things. Instead, you're just grinding out yet another tutorial video over and over and you hit that dip and then the project dies. Mm -hmm. So you have to spend your time and your energy somewhere. You can do it in lazy fashion like most companies do, or you can do it in an interesting way. Something else that came to mind when you were talking about Michelin stars, you also mentioned the Guinness Book of World Records, right? Which is Guinness, the mm -hmm. beer company, mm -hmm. has this book that's amazing and everybody loves to read it. It's so fun. How lucky are they that their name is out there? And Guinness does a ton of advertising as well. And the, and the history of advertising wouldn't be what it is if Guinness hadn't been involved. But how great is it that they produce this, this book and they don't have to pay for their ad to go somewhere because the book has their name all over it. On the other hand, there are all these lazy companies out there that just drive me insane by naming stadiums <laughs> and paying for the rights. How lazy is that to spend a hundred thousand or a hundred million dollars or something over the course of how many years to force everyone who talks about a sporting event to use their goddamn name? It's just, I, I hate it. And I wish there were more cities that said, screw that. We're buying the rights to this and it's going to be the such and such, the, the Portland, you know, whatever, as opposed to Moda Center, which is some company that nobody even likes like look up the reviews for moda jeez it's a healthcare company a health insurance company <laughs> so anyway a point being like there's a there's an interesting useful way to do something and and the thing that i heard throughout the thread as you were going over the different things that convertkit has tried not all of them home runs but the thing that stuck out to me is that your main goal is to produce something that is interesting and useful and has the potential to change one person. 
and not necessarily that you're going after it as a numbers game, just trying to reach the masses with this thing. You hope that it will grow and become really big, but it has to be good first and then hopefully it's big because there's so much crap out there. Right. I I think about this in terms of when I was in my early twenties, I'd always read those 30 under 30 lists and I'd think, oh, I want to be on one of those. And it was probably about the time I turned 30 when it was obviously no longer going to happen. I realized you can't actually get there by wanting the outcome. You can't get famous by wanting to be famous. You can't be on a 30 under 30 list by wanting to be on the 30 under 30 list. You have to do something worthy of being on the list. You have to do something worthy of fame, sometimes in negative ways, unfortunately, um, in that case. But for us, my the hypothesis is exactly that. You can only spread if you can make it work for one person or if you can really resonate with one person. You know, if that if that musical performance doesn't hit home with the few people that did watch it, then you're never going to have one that spreads to millions of people because it just doesn't work that way. People are lazy. They're not going to go share something that doesn't resonate with them deeply. On the and on the inverse, just because it resonates, they won't either. But it's got to resonate, I think, on some level. It's got to hit a nerve on some level for it to have any shot at spreading far and wide. Is there anything that we can boil this down for an individual creator? Any examples that you've seen? So you mentioned James Clear and Naval Ravikant, both on Twitter and elsewhere, who are who make really interesting uses of that particular medium. And mm-hmm. they both do in, in other mediums as well. In fact, Naval, I think, if I recall, doesn't he have a incredibly short podcast that also has like a YouTube channel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with yeah. just like very so he's got like episodes. this. He's got this thread on becoming wealthy or something like that. Yeah, and that interestingly to the original point is the distillation of longer podcast clips that they've organized all into one big thing on becoming wealthy. It's like three hours now, but it's from all those short clips. So what I would distill it down to, I'll tell the story of Guinness because if you heard the the capstone of the Guinness story, you got to get the origin too. And then relate that to how I think it applies to people listening. The Guinness founders were on a hunting trip, like a shooting trip for birds in England, I guess, or the UK somewhere. And a bird flew out and one of them said, that's got to be the fastest, whatever, hunting bird in the world. And someone else said, no, it's not. And they decided they were going to find out what's the fastest hunting bird in the world. And so that was the root for this thing that became Guinness World Records. They went and researched that one. And then they said, okay, well, what if we started making a guide to records that are answers to the kinds of questions people debate in bars? And that was how it tied back to the beer. And that became the Guinness Book of World Records is answers to the questions people debate over beers. Guinness. I love that story. I think it's hilarious and brilliant and now Guinness World Records is its own organization, you know, but to your point, it's still got the Guinness name all over it everywhere. It's one of the, I think it's one of the most best-selling books of all time. Yeah. You know, the Bible is always first, and then you've got books like that. So the way I think it relates is content is a habitual game, without a doubt. It still is. You must make 
content habitually over a long period of time. You have, you have to keep going and you have to do it on a somewhat regular schedule to get enough attention to be able to earn a living at this stuff. And I think it would be more valuable to decrease the frequency of what you're doing and increase the originality of what you're doing in order to get more traction faster. And so if you take some of the examples that I talked about, I think it would be more interesting to go interview a creator and take original photography of them that you or interview whoever that your, you know, your topic relates to. Interview fly fisher people and take photos of them fishing and to publish one article a month that's a deep dive, really emotional like connection to the craft with beautiful photography attached that's really high quality. One of those a month I think will get you a lot further than a crappy little article every week. And that's not to say you shouldn't write the how-to stuff. You know, you can work that stuff in in between. But if you want to get noticed in a saturated content world, you've got to do something unique. And so that's going to take some risks. And the biggest thing I think you've got to be comfortable with is you can't need the content to work tomorrow to take this kind of approach because it's, it's too much pressure for that content. You're not going to do it the right way. You're not going to actually come up with original ideas. And... I tweeted this one yesterday coming off the back of a podcast episode. You've got to know that you already have love and belonging, like that baseline. The village already accepts you. Your village are not your readers or your watchers or your listeners. Your village is your family and your friends and everyone else. And they're going to love you no matter what. You can't be looking for the content to make you loved or to give you belonging. Like you've got to be starting from a place of I am okay. I belong I have the, you know, whatever resources I need. And because I'm okay, now I'm going to go try some really interesting stuff and make some work. And it's not going to change my life. It's not going to make everything better, but it's going to be a worthwhile endeavor that I enjoy along the way. And so I think if you take those two approaches, knowing you're okay and trying original things rather than just getting on the content hamster wheel and staying on it forever, I don't know. Maybe it's not a surefire path to success, but I think you'll be pretty happy with how interested you were in the work along the way. And also, I think when you finish a project, as most projects end at some point, you if you take a more unique, labored, intentional, curated sort of approach to something, you will look back and have something that is that stands on its own. You know, a lot of times we feel like a blog or a podcast or something just has to live forever. It just goes on and on and on. Never knows when it should end. Unlike Michael Jordan, as we've seen in the recent documentary, like he went out on top, right? And it's so great to see that sometimes. But a couple of examples of this, you brought up one earlier that we didn't really talk about, but here are two that I love that people can look at. One is The Great Discontent. And this is a sort of blog. It's really a series of interviews with really interesting people in design and in other creative fields. And then there's another one called In the Make. And In the Make was a series of studio visits with West Coast artists. And mm. unfortunately, In the Make ended at some point because the people behind it moved on to other projects. But that project lives on and you can go in and read those studio visits and they're just as interesting today as if they were producing new ones. And the people who did that had notoriety and were able to go on and, and do other things because not necessarily because millions of people tuned in, but because the right people tuned in. 
and so often, so many of us are after just the numbers, the clicks and the likes and the raw download numbers and so on, when really it's the quality of who is tuning in that matters so much more. Yeah, I love that. Couldn't agree more. Barrett Brooks, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was fun. Yeah, we'll have to have you on again soon. Everybody, you can find links to everything that we talked about over at fizzleshow.co. You can find Barrett Brooks over at barrettabrooks.com, his own site. And you can find the company we were talking about that he runs with Nathan Berry, ConvertKit, which offers email software for creators. You can find that over at convertkit.com. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. 